Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a vote that puts Republicans on the record, actively harming their own constituents by refusing to codify Roe v. Wade into law. Today, every single Republican senator voted against advancing the Women's Health Protection Act, which prohibits government restrictions on abortion. Even the so-called pro-choice Republicans, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, voted against it. You know, the same ones who claimed that this would never happen. After presiding over the vote, Vice President Kamala Harris called out Republican extremism. This vote clearly suggests that the Senate is not where the majority of Americans are on this issue. It also makes clear that a priority for all who care about this issue, a priority should be to elect pro-choice leaders at the local, the state, and the federal level. Because what we are seeing around this country are extremist Republican leaders who are seeking to criminalize and punish women from making decisions about their own body. Of course, the Democrats in-house Colbert and Joe Manchin also voted no, claiming this bill goes too far. He's the only Democrat to do so, even though he is not the only Democrat in the Senate with a professed moral opposition to abortion. Bob Casey of Pennsylvania voted with the Democrats saying that the circumstances around the entire debate on abortion have changed now that the Supreme Court decision has leaked and Republicans are floating a nationwide ban. His vote is especially significant, given that his father, the former governor of Pennsylvania, was the Casey in Planned Parenthood versus Casey after signing legislation that had numerous restrictions on abortion, including the requirement that women notify their husbands before terminating a pregnancy. Senator Casey is proof that you can have genuine religious or personal beliefs about abortion without imposing those beliefs on other people. Ahead of the vote, Senate Democrats displayed a passionate united front, with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer noting that tens of millions of women are watching. And the House showed its support as well. Here they are chanting, my body, my decision, as they marched over to the Senate side. Meanwhile, Republicans continue to make ridiculous arguments. Here's Montana Senator Steve Daines yesterday. Why do we have laws in place that protect the eggs of a sea turtle or the eggs of eagles? Because when you destroy an egg, you're killing a pre-born baby sea turtle or a pre-born baby eagle. Yet when it comes to a pre-born human baby rather than a sea turtle, that baby will be stripped of all protections. Oh, Senator, Senator, do you need to go back to biology class? Protecting sea turtle eggs has nothing to do with human mother. Sea turtles lay their eggs and then they go back to the sea. And do, do you eat fried eggs? What, what are you talking about? When they weren't making ludicrous analogies, Republicans were attempting to distract and deflect by moaning about peaceful protesters outside the homes of Supreme Court justices, for example. It is illegal to go try to intimidate a judge who's hearing a case at their home like it would be a juror. It is an open effort to intimidate Supreme Court justices on their decision. It's illegal. It's improper. It should be condemned. It is unlawful. It is against the law in this country to protest a sitting judge. It's meant to intimidate the justices. It is an attempt to replace the rule of law with the rule of mobs. It appears this may possibly be flat out illegal. They are citing a federal statute that says it is illegal to intimidate judges. But none of the protesters are expecting to be able to intimidate Samuel Alito into magically gaining a conscience and exiting his precious 19th century. 
The truth is, Republicans are grasping at straws and waving the shiny keys because they know that overturning Roe is extremely, extremely unpopular with the American people. The National Republican Senate Committee, chaired by Rick Scott, put out a memo telling Republicans to, quote, be the compassionate consensus builder on abortion policy and to refute lies, noting that Republicans don't want to take away contraception or to throw doctors and women into jail. No, 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 no. Really? Well, as E.J. Dionne points out in The Washington Post, this is a bold-faced lie, noting that what legislators in Republican-led states are considering on reproductive issues does not square with what Republican pollsters want their candidates to say. Republican politicians have floated restricting birth control, and Louisiana's law would even allow murder charges for abortions for doctors and patients. Not to mention the fact that Mitch McConnell has acknowledged that if Republicans take the Senate— a nationwide abortion ban could be on the way. What's more, if Republicans really supported compassionate policies, I don't know, maybe they would, as Dion points out, support expanding health care, lower prescription drug prices, paid family leave and medical leave and the child tax credit, all components of the Build Back Better bill, which they all oppose. But no, 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 they are just hoping that they can somehow hoodwink the American voter into thinking they care about them while they steal women's freedom. But as Washington Senator Patty Murray said on the floor today, to applause, the voters will not forget. And Senator Patty Murray of Washington joins me now. And, and Senator, I wonder whether any of your Republican colleagues were able to look you in the eye after voting to side with Samuel Alito and send women's rights back to the 19th century. No, Joy, they are not. They are sidetracking everybody with conversations that have nothing to do with the reality of the laws that they are now passing in states across the country and with what the leaked Supreme Court decision will do, which will basically mean that politicians, not you, will decide your future and your, autonom- uh, your choices for your own body. And I want to play you what Senator Ted Cruz from one of the states with the lowest rankings when it comes to maternal health care and one of the highest rankings when it comes to things like poverty. They don't want to have the Affordable Care Act there. They don't want to allow people to have health care, all that kind of stuff. Here's the senator from that state, Ted Cruz, comparing abortion rights protesters to the January 6th insurrection. Is serious. What we're seeing these images are the latest manifestation of just how extreme, just how radical the Democratic Party is getting. Today's Democrat Party believes in violence. They believe in mob rule. They believe in intimidation. These thugs have no business at the private homes of any government officials, these Supreme Court justices or anyone else. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting, and yet the corporate media and Democrats slander them with the the made-up term insurrectionist. And yet, in this instance, they are not willing to call off their goons uh, so I don't know if we have video of the insurrection, just to show it again for those who maybe have forgotten what it looks like. They're comparing people who are holding candles outside of one of these, you know, rights stripping Supreme Court justices homes to the people who busted into the Capitol, shat on the floor and threatened to hang the vice president of the United States while smashing through glass and trying to kill United States senators and members of Congress. Your thoughts, Joy? That was one of the most offensive things I've heard, and I've heard a lot of offensive things since the Supreme Court leaked uh, this memo. And I will tell you, I was here on January 6th. My life was threatened, and so was everyone else's, by people who wanted to take over 
the United States Senate and House by use of force. In this country, you, we use our voices and we use our votes to make our opinions known. And people have a right to do that. But this is nothing, nothing compared to January 6th. And I find that offensive. I find his words offensive. I find his tone offensive. And I find his message offensive. What we are talking about today are Republican politicians who are going to take over your choices in your life and tell you what they believe in is more important than you. And not only more important, but they're going to impose it on you. That, to me, is offensive. That is using words and legislative language and intent to take away your rights. Far different than what happened on January 6th. Indeed, indeed. Uh, let me let me just play you actually one more before I let you go, because here's Ron Johnson. He's basically said the same thing. He claims that I'm going to just read what he said. Um, he says that he expects abortion to be a non-issue in his reelection campaign. He says it might be a little messy for some people, but abortion is not going away. He said, saying that driving across state lines to Illinois would likely be an option if women just want to exercise their rights. I just don't think this is going to be a big political issue. Everybody thinks it is because it's not going to be that big of a change. Your thoughts. Uh you know, Ron, I'm glad that you've never had to make a decision about your own body, but I find it very offensive that you want to use your words to make decisions for other people and their bodies and their decisions. This is going to activate voters across the country. When women begin to realize the impacts of these state laws and the intent of the Republican Party that is clear to everyone to see today, that they want to take away your right to make your own choices about your own health care and your own reproductive rights. That is real and clear and will become more clear every single day as these states pass these laws and they go into effect. We intend to lift up the voices of women and men across the country and fight back in every single election in this country. Yeah, let uh, any of these states make Viagra or Cialis illegal and say Ron Johnson and friends can drive across state lines if they want to get that drug and watch them go absolutely as crazy as they went when they were told, please wear a mask so you don't give people COVID. Um, Senator Patty Murray, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And with thank me now you. is Representative, thank you, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri. I, I want to, you know, not to re-traumatize you, um, you know, we've talked about this before, though. I mean, the idea that people like Ron Johnson and Ted Cruz are focusing on the protests, the protesters saying they're the real problem and trying to deflect attention, when at the same time, states are passing laws that would have said that the, you've talked about your situation of being a rape victim, of being pregnant. The laws they want to put in place would have ordered and demanded by state command that you give birth to your, uh, you know, your victimizer's child. And, and I just wonder how you feel listening to these men stand around and say, well, this isn't a big problem. The real problem is the protests. You know, the fact that they would even compare January 6th to any actual protest, let's just say any protest, um, first of all, is, uh, you know, is them trying to deflect. Um, but, you know, the idea that I would have to I would have carried a child and had to raise a child um, being in a place where I was broken emotionally and mentally and also broke financially. Uh, and I was and to be able to really raise a child and to do right by that child, um, you know, but, but the, the thing is this. 
opposition to abortion care has never been about uh, babies. It's never been about children, because if it was, we'd have better resources for when the child is actually born. Um, but so it was never about that. It's just about control. It's about who our government sees as fully human in this country. You know, and so it takes me to this, uh, to this joy. You know, um, there's a reason why we don't see sperm regulation legislation. There's a reason why we don't see mandated vasectomies. You know, the very idea that we would take away men's bodily autonomy, it's outrageous, like it's unfathomable. You know, but truthfully, sperm are busy. It's busy. Who's regulating that? Who's saying something about it? I didn't see the senator say anything about that. Where is that legislation? And, and it, there will never be that. Um, especially if it's up to them because they don't see that as something that's needed because it's about control and it's not about children. You know, and in a state like your state, you know, which is a red state, there is this sense that it does that, that this won't really have an impact. Right. That people will look past the fact that Samuel Alito literally went back to the 17th and the 19th century um, during the era when the people he so reveres their writings were engaged and legalized the idea of human breeding. They were breeding humans. They were force breeding black people so that they could have more product, so they could sell them. And the abortion right that was not really questioned when it came to women who are white and married and Christian, their mental health or physical health, that was not a problem. But it was illegal because black women sometimes were aborting to stop the human breeding. And the, and the fact that they revere this era, that they want this to be the era that decides what rights we have. Do you agree with them that people will just look past that and be able to get over it and just live in this Gilead and not say anything and not do anything about it? Oh, no, no, no. Nobody's looking over it. We're not looking past it. We haven't. We're still working right now. The decision is not written yet. And so we're still fighting now um, for folks like me who do live in um, in states that have trigger bans. You know, we understand what's going to happen and how immediate it, it is. We're thinking about that 13 year old that that uh, that would like to have an abortion because this you know, however they became pregnant, they know that this is not what they need right now. This is not the, this would not be the best for them or their child. So the person who is uh, knows that there is something, there is a, an abnormality with the baby to the person who needs to have a DNC because they had a miscarriage or someone who has an ectopic pregnancy instead of them dying because nobody's talking about, nobody's talking about what happens mm -hmm. to women when, or and women and, and people who give birth, uh, what happens to them when they um, they have a pregnancy that is not viable and how that process to be able to so that they are healthy. We're not talking about that. And the thing is, it still hands off our bodies. And so if they won't, if they don't want to talk about us regulating their sperm, then don't talk about what's happening to our bodies. And we shouldn't be talking about we shouldn't be trying to regulate their sperm just the same way they shouldn't be trying to regu regulate our uteruses. You can get an amen. It's not even Sunday. Um, Congresswoman Cori Bush, thank you very much for being here this evening. And up next on the readout, cheers. Um, the draft abortion decision makes it clear that Chief Justice John Roberts has lost control of the court to the hyperpartisans who are there to serve the right wing agenda, period. Plus, new emails reveal more about how Trump lawyer John Eastman tried to convince red states to simply discard thousands of ballots and declare Trump the winner. 
Former Attorney General Eric Holder joins me on that and his new book on our endangered voting rights. Plus, America's truly awful history of mistreating Native Americans. A new government report exposes the shocking brutality against indigenous children. The readout continues after this. Although it was Justice Samuel Alito who wrote the draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, all eyes will be on Chief Justice John Roberts when the Supreme Court meets tomorrow for the first time since the draft leaked. Roberts has encountered growing tensions with conservatives on and off the court in recent years. As a member of the court's conservative wing, he's also been known to occasionally break with his colleagues, most famously drawing Republican ire for being the deciding vote in 2012 to uphold Obamacare. An attorney close to several conservative justices told Politico, quote, there is a price to be paid for what he did. Everybody remembers it, unquote. Hmm, interesting. Roberts must pay a price for not helping his fellow conservatives extinguish 30 million Americans' health care? Well, that sure sounds like a political agenda to me. Roberts didn't play ball on a Republican political party priority. So now other conservatives get to nuke 100 million women's rights? Huh. I mean, it sounds like these so-called conservative jurists aren't really jurists at all. They sound like politicians. I mean, we know that most Supreme Court justices come up through partisan politics, but this new majority represents something far more dangerous. Ideologues who understand their role, that they are an extension of the Republican Party's obsession with using the high court, along with voting restrictions, to assert their political will. And now they're just going ahead and admitting it. Joining me now, Dahlia Lithwick, a senior editor and legal correspondent for Slate and host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law in the Supreme Court. And Dahlia, I, I think that is a very telling admission where you have people, you know, speaking for these justices saying that Roberts has got to pay for not allowing Republicans to kill Obamacare. That tells me all I need to know about these conservatives. They're just Republican politicians. Republican politicians, Joy, and also Republican politicians who are really comfortable talking like mobsters. Like this is like big Tony Soprano energy that you're hearing here. And the fact that somebody would be willing to leak that statement, uh, you know, mm. I mean, we like to at least pretend that the justices are above politics. And when you have this language that is happily leaked by somebody who's apparently chatting with three of the conservative justices, says Politico, they want you to know that this is a political institution. Yeah. It feels like that's almost the scary part is that that facade of, you know, we are neutral oracles, we transcend politics, do not criticize us in partisan ways. That's a rule for you and me, Joy. Apparently it's not mm -hmm. the rule in the court anymore. Right. I mean, Clarence Thomas coming out with this comical statement that, you know, talking about the decline in respect for institutions and the rule of law, it pulls ill for a free society, said if it can't trust it, you know, it can't be the institutions give you only the outcome you want or can be bullied. Really, Clarence? Because Clarence Thomas has stood for the longest time for the principle that I'm on this court and the minute we get a 5-4 or 6-3 majority, we're nuking all your rights. Voting rights, gone. Abortion rights, gone. We have a whole list of stuff we're going to do to you. And you can't say anything to us because then you're like not respecting the court. Like they're just admitting it. There are a couple of them that still want to be revered. But most of them, as you said, don't give a damn. They were like, we're taking your rights because we can. Yeah, this has the, the feeling of a kind of spiking the football moment that given the choice to do this nasty and trolly or the choice to do it in a sort of a lofty way that at least 
appears to be the way that the court wants to see itself, there's clearly been a pretty system-wide decision to do it nasty and to do a kind of because we can. And I keep trying to square Justice Thomas saying you don't get to just disrespect institutions and set aside their decisions because you don't like them with his wife's open efforts to set aside the 2020 election with Mark Meadows. So it's an amazing thing that the rules that they seem to feel um, govern their own conduct and I guess the conduct Mm -hmm. of their spouse doesn't apply to the rest of us. I mean, we all have to abide by the illusion that they're magic and they are just out there on the plaza pulling each other's hair and screaming. Oh, oh, 100 percent. And I don't doubt for one second that if Donald Trump attempts to steal the next election, all five of them will say we ratify that because they are literally political and ideological hyper uh, hyper partisan actors who are openly now saying oh, we're going to do this agenda because we have a little short time on hands. They're all Mitch McConnell. Let me ask you about the fact that um, so far there's only one only this leaked draft. There isn't any evidence that there's another draft. What do you think that says about how Roberts will assign the um, dissent? And does it, at this point, does it even matter? I mean, the short, depressing answer, Joy, is I think this is proof that what we were looking for, which is that John Roberts had his own narrower, sad that this passes for good news, right? That he would just (laughs) uphold the 15-week ban, but keep the core of Roe and Casey, albeit hollowed out. It seems that that is not materialized. There isn't a narrower conservative ruling that he apparently circulated in response to this in the hopes that he could peel off Justices Barrett or Kavanaugh. And so the depressing thing that was reported today is that we've got the dissenters working on dissent. This is something akin to the final draft. It'll be, you know, buffed a little bit of the grossness will be buffed out. But I think that John Roberts does not have the votes to get anything close to something that would have been a compromise, albeit a compromise that ended abortion at 15 weeks. So it's not none of this is good news. Yeah. I, I feel like we, I know kind of how it feels like when Plessy versus Ferguson went down, probably went down the same, but they're like, we're doing this. What you going to do? Can't stop us. We're the elites and we rule you. Um, something else on Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you very much. Always great to talk with you. And still ahead, chilling new details on the corrupt plot to overturn the 2020 election and how extreme partisan gerrymandering now poses a serious threat to American democracy. Former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder joins me next. We're back after this. We are still learning the full extent of the efforts by Trump's allies to subvert democracy and hand the former president an illegitimate victory. There's new reporting today that Trump lawyer John Eastman was advising state lawmakers on how to disenfranchise their own voters long before he was urging former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election. Emails obtained by Politico show that Eastman hatched a plan to recount Pennsylvania's votes after throwing out tens of thousands of absentee ballots. In an email about a month after the election, Eastman wrote to Pennsylvania legislator Russ Diamond, quote, having done that math, you'd be left with a significant Trump lead that would bolster the argument for the legislature adopting a slate of Trump electors. Perfectly within your authority to do anyway, but now bolstered by the untainted popular vote. That would help provide some cover. Hmm. The emails are part of a cash sent to the January 6th Select Committee by a Colorado group. Eastman had used a University of Colorado email account when he was, while he was a visiting professor there. The new revelations come as Republicans continue to try to whitewash the siege as a peaceful protest. 
In his new book, former Attorney General Eric Holder writes that while many have tried to erase the danger of January 6th, the real story of that day isn't how our country came together to make sure this coup attempt failed. It's how close it came to succeeding and how quickly in states across the country, Republicans began working to make sure that the next time it could. I'm joined now by former Attorney General Eric Holder, chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee and author of Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, A History, A Crisis, A Plan. A very timely book as well. Um, Attorney General Holder, thank you for being here. And this is what scares me is well, two things. One, how close they came to actually succeeding in this coup and how detailed the coup planning was, but also the fact that they've started working on fixing the things that went wrong so they could get it right the next time, especially by replacing all up and down the ballot, regular Republicans, formerly regular Republicans with people who believe the big lie and were willing to implement it. How worried should we be that we won't have any more free and fair elections in this country going forward? I think we need to be extremely concerned about that. The reality is that they came pretty close in 2020. And as you say, with the replacement of these regular Republicans, like the guy Vanderbilt in Michigan, um, potentially what they're trying to do with Georgia, um, state officials as well. If you have a close election, as we talk about in the book, if you have a close election the next time, uh, you may have Republicans who are willing to do the kinds of things um, that that disgrace um, Eastman w- was trying to, to pull off. Uh, we stood between the first time we did not have a a, a, a tr- peaceful transfer of power uh, and you know the way we normally do things. It was a, a very, very narrow margin that kept us a functioning democracy. Let me let me read something that you wrote in, in your book. Um, you talked about the fact that, you know, going all the way back and you write a lot about and I'm obviously very passionate about the idea of the vote um, and the Shelby ruling that you said made you realize that the Supreme Court was not going to protect us here. You said, how could five unelected judges with lifetime appointments gut a law that had been rec- so recently reauthorized by Congress in a historic bipartisan landslide? had been supported by every president since Lyndon Johnson and had for nearly 50 years secured the right to vote for millions of Americans. There were plenty of past Supreme Court rulings that I did not agree with, but at least with those, I believe the justices has co- had come by their opinions honestly, that they had written them on the basis of their understanding of the Constitution. With Shelby, I had a hard time convincing myself that that was true. Um, you also noted that without a legitimate basis, they'd undermined our most fundamental right. Um, and as, as a silent protest, you decided you would not appear before the court as attorney general. Now that we've seen what they're willing to do to women's rights with Roe, I would think that has deepened your cynicism about them. And so if a case were to come to this court that we now have with this five um, ideological, five person ideological majority, do you believe that they would affirm the theft of the election? That's a real concern. You know, that is a real, real concern. What will they do? Um, I'm not saying that they're necessarily partisan, but they are certainly overly ideological. And they have turned their back on precedent in reaching this apparent decision about Roe versus Wade. Uh, you know, they have attacked a, a fundamental right here. That is the right to privacy. And there's a whole range of things that are based on the right to privacy, same-sex marriage, a whole range of other things. And if they're willing to do that with regard to abortion, why should we assume that they are going to stop there? When it comes to things political, what we have seen them do with regard to uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case in Rucho, when they decided not to get involved uh, when it came to partisan gerrymandering, Citizens United. I mean, this is a court that is 
at least with regard to five of its members, are, are pretty radical and not at all feeling that they have to be bound by the notion of, of, of precedence, which is the glue, which is the glue that gives the uh, Supreme Court legitimacy. So then when you have, you know, good news like we had today in Florida, where, you know, Ron DeSantis's really racist map was thrown out because he essentially stripped black Floridians in the central part of the state, the same place where he's attacking Disney, of their representatives to replace them with Republicans. This extreme gerrymandered map, despite the fact that Florida has a fair district amendment in their constitution that was voted on by the people. So they won, you know, the, the people won in Florida. But what I, whenever I see a victory like that, I just fear that the Republicans will appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. And then this court will say, nah, you can have the racist map. Well, yeah, I mean, we won a case in Alabama with two Trump judges who said, you know, black people in Alabama do not have adequate representation when it comes to the congressional delegation. You need to redraw the maps in such a way they do have an opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. We won that. They took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court made the determination that it was too close in time to the election. And therefore, Alabamans will vote this year on a on a slate of candidates that a court down there, including two Trump just judges, said was inappropriate, was unconstitutional. Um, in, in Wisconsin, we had the Wisconsin Supreme Court pick a map that was designed by the, the Wisconsin Democratic governor. The Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, threw that out. And so they have shown themselves to be not only radical, but also activists. The thing that we have always heard from conservatives and from Republicans, they, they rail against um, activist judges unless they do things uh, in the way that they want them to be done. Yeah, and I would still argue they were, they're partisan as well, but I will leave that, uh, us disagree on that. So what do we do about this? Um, your book talks about, you know, trying to solve it, a plan. Your last, the last line in your book is a plan. What's the plan? Well, the, the plan is we talk about a number of structural reforms, uh, you know, limiting the number of years that somebody can serve on the Supreme Court to 18, the way in which Supreme Court justices are picked. Uh, have Every president pick a Supreme Court justice in his or her first and third year of, of a term, uh, banning partisan gerrymandering, but also empowering people to get involved. I mean, talking about voting, uh, we, we talk about a, a young woman named Love Caesar, uh, who was at North Carolina A&T and who was concerned about the fact that North Carolina A&T was divided. I mean, literally divided in half. One part of the campus, half the campus was in one congressional district. Half of the campus was in another congressional district. Also that you would weaken the power of that huge black population that resided on North Carolina A&T. She drew a line right down the street where that line actually went in chalk. I went down there, saw it, through her activism, through the lawsuit that we brought, um, that was change. And that's just one of the examples. And we have the book filled with examples of so-called ordinary people deciding to be involved, committed, sacrificing, uh, and making big structural changes. And we still have that capacity um, within us. This is, uh, at the end of the day, I think it's a pretty optimistic book. Uh, it raises the dangers and talks about the dangers we face now in a realistic way but provides a pathway so that we can get back to the America that, although flawed, is consistent with our, our, our founding ideals. Well, I like optimism. I don't, I don't have a lot of it, so I'll take it. Our unfinished march, the violent past, and imperiled future of the vote, a uh, history, a crisis, a plan. I like that, a plan part. Um, former U.S. attorney 
Eric Holder, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate you being here. And up next. Thanks, Joy. Cheers. Cheers. A new report details the horrific treatment of Native American students at government schools for more than a century. We'll be right back. The American indigenous experience is littered with one violent betrayal after another. If stealing Native lands and murdering Native people wasn't enough, the American government set up a plan to, quote, educate Native people. That plan was a roughly 100-year-long campaign of ethnic cleansing by way of Christian boarding schools. Captain Richard Henry Pratt, superintendent of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, one of the largest cleansing schools, explained that the goal was to, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. In 1890, Lone Wolf, a Blackfoot Native American from Montana, recounted the horrific story of his abduction. Quote, the soldiers came and rounded up as many of the Blackfeet children as they could. The government had decided we were to get white man's education by force. None of us wanted to go, and our parents didn't want to let us go. Our belongings were taken from us. Next was the long hair, the pride of all the Indians. We were told never to talk Indian, and if we were caught, we got a strapping with a leather belt. Unquote. Some of these schools remained open until the late 1960s. This is the history that Ron DeSantis and his Republican fellow travelers do not want your kids to learn. The same kind of erasure was at work through barbaric practices like these schools. They erased the fact that these indigenous communities didn't need white Christian education. They had functioning government systems, their own religious and complex social systems, with which the colonizers were determined to destroy along with any memory of them. Today, whole tribes, languages, and cultures have been exterminated, and the lasting trauma from the physical and emotional abuse continues to reverberate throughout Native communities. Today, the Department of the Interior released a long-awaited report, which documented the abuse of many of the children at these government-run schools, such as beatings, withholding of food, and solitary confinement. The investigation also identified marked or unmarked burial sites, at approximately 53 different schools, a number expected to increase. Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American cabinet secretary, announced a year-long tour to allow American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian survivors of the federal Indian boarding school system the opportunity to share their stories and to help connect. Joining me now is attorney Jossie Ross, who is a member of Blackfeet Nation. And Jossie, thank you for being here. I wonder if Telling the story and having the federal government admit to it is enough or is that a start of some recompense that is needed to be done? Uh, Great question. Thank you very much, Joy, for having me. Salute to Secretary Howland for this very, very important, uh, courageous conversation. Um, It is a beginning. And I know there's going to be critics and, and rightfully so who say it's not sufficient. However, everything has a genesis, and this is the genesis of having a meaningful, formal conversation. The first time there's ever been a formal conversation that acknowledged that there was a a systematic undoing of Native community and Native families at the hands of, of the government in the name of, and it's perverse because it creates a lot of distrust to this day, in the name of education. And it still affects our children to this day in the name of education, where we see Native students getting expelled and suspended at at some of the highest 
rates in the country where there's still a punitive model of education. So we, we have a lot to sort out, but it's a very, very important beginning to that conversation, Joy. And, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, I was thinking today as I was preparing to, to talk to you, there feels like there's kind of a symmetry with the way that the Supreme Court has essentially said, we, the we five, have the right Christian values. And therefore, like it or not, all of you women in this country will live under our Christian value system, because in our mind, it's the right system. That's the same attitude that the American government had toward indigenous people. Well, you all have the wrong culture. You have the wrong religious beliefs. You have the wrong hair. You have the wrong, everything about you is wrong. We're going to, we're going to make you live under our value system. You're going to look like us and talk like us and be like us, whether you like it or not. Do you, do you see that same kind of symmetry? Because I feel like the court is, they're still colonizing. Definitely. And, and to go uh, into what, what you mentioned, that history where it was creating a, a structure where everything for these native children, and I, I want to acknowledge that these were real human beings. We're talking about confused kids. I have a, I have a seven-year-old daughter. I have a 10-year-old daughter. My, my grandpa, Percy Bullchild, member of the Blackfeet Nation, he ran away from boarding school when he was sixth grade because the abuse was too great. This is something that's a matter of record. And, and he told us about how his parents were confused because they didn't speak English. So all they see is these children leaving. These are real human beings with no explanation whatsoever, no context whatsoever, seeing their children leave and the children being stripped from their, their families, from their communities. And so your question about whether that, that proselytizing has continued, absolutely. We are being held captive joy we're hostages right now to the whims of five people to the to the uh, beliefs and and you know i respect their beliefs absolutely they have as much right to their beliefs as you do or i do however they should not get the benefit of proselytizing in mass their beliefs wholesale to every single of the 350 million people in this United States, the way that they did to Native people, the way that they did to the descendants of African slaves, the way that they did with Korematsu, Japanese descendants. It's an ugly, ugly thing, and it continues to this day. Yeah, and it's why they don't want to teach history. Um, you know, I for my note, my producer notes here, which is I didn't even know this, that Indigenous Americans didn't even have the right to vote until 1948. You know, and and it, it strikes me that you know when America catches a cold, um, Black folks catch a fever, and Indigenous people get pneumonia, right? Um, and it, so this ruling that we've seen um, on abortion. I think about the, the sort of multiplicative effect of the horror on indigenous people in communities where in some cases there's a lot of poverty, there's already a lack of health care. What's going to be the impact of these rulings on indigenous people? As you mentioned, it, it, there's always a much more profound effect when you get further into communities that don't have access to all the conveniences of uh, first, uh, you know, economics. Then you get to geographically remote as most native communities are. And then you get to the dynamic that most native communities reside in places that are politically conservative. And so we have this dynamic where there is going to be an absolute, um, it's going to be a, a uh, 
you know, a, a, a real, really, really um, difficult time for an already a group of people that already have a difficult time with with lack of access to, you know, from technology. The digital divide is very, very real in certain native communities. There's less technology, less wire, wireless broadband access than parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, and then you compound that with no access to very, very necessary medical procedures, procedures that are yeah. absolutely uh, a, a right there, there's something that they're not a privilege. There's something that every yep. person and particularly people who can't access some of these economic, you know, the, the, the back, uh, back door sort of deals that yeah. wealthy people can do. Um, and, and now you have them being completely yep. kept out of that process. And it's going to create a very, very bad situation. Joy. Indeed. I'm going to have you come back because I want to talk to you about other politics stuff. So, Jassy, please promise you we'll come back. Uh, I always love talking with you. Um, and we'll talk midterms and stuff next time. Um, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And up next, being a member of the press used to be seen as a form of protection in conflict zones. Well, these days, it can actually also make you a target. We'll be right back. Veteran Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, one of Al Jazeera's best-known reporters, was shot and killed today on the outskirts of the Janine refugee camp in the occupied northern West Bank. She was covering Israel's near-daily raids there following a series of deadly attacks inside Israel. In a statement, Al Jazeera condemned the killing, calling the shooting a blatant murder, adding that the Israeli occupation forces assassinated the journalist in cold blood, targeting her with live fire. The Israeli military initially suggested that Abu Akla might have been killed by stray fire from Palestinians, only to walk that back. Another journalist who witnessed the shooting told the Associated Press that Israeli soldiers were shooting at Akla even after she was wounded, claiming it was clearly an assassination against us as journalists. Her producer, who was also injured during the shooting, told the AP that Abu Akla was clearly wearing a blue flak jacket marked with the word press. Her body was carried through the streets covered with a Palestinian flag and that flak jacket. The White House condemned the killing and called for a thorough investigation into the circumstances of her death. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, promised that the investigation would be transparent. But as some journalists who've long observed this region have noted, history doesn't offer much hope in that regard. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 17 journalists have been killed or murdered since the start of this year. Our deepest condolences to Ms. Abu Akla's loved ones. And that is tonight's readout. 